For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins. Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read. And Malcolm Mitchell. When I scored a touchdown, they either probably put my name in a newspaper, people probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat? Find out more information and register for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards ceremony at amplify.com slash Star Awards celebrations. That's amplify.com slash Star Awards celebration, all one word. These are challenging times, and we respect your unwavering commitment to your students. At Amplify, we are working especially hard to support you. And as we all grapple with what it means to focus on the science of reading in a new world of remote learning, we're committed to walking with you through the unknown. Welcome to Science of Reading, the podcast. I'm your host, Susan Lambert. Join us as we talk with experts to explore what it takes to develop joyful, confident, and capable readers. Joining me on today's episode is Elizabeth Jimenez Salinas, an advocate for multilingual and multicultural learners, their families, and the educators that support them. She has published everything from research articles to Spanish language children's books, highlighting and supporting language development. Today, we hear her background, why she's so passionate about language education, and her research around long-term English learners. This session is packed with practical information. Well, welcome, Elizabeth. Thank Thank you so much for being a guest on today's episode. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm excited to share with you a little bit about the work we're doing. That's great. And that's a really good segue into what I always like to ask our guests, which is to talk a little bit about their background. How did you become interested in literacy and and how does that relate to, you know, your bigger scope of work now? That's a great question. I became interested in language. And if you think about literacy, it's built upon oral language. And I had the great opportunity as a child to um, develop my superpower, which is being bilingual. (laughs) And, um, you know, very, very um, important to me to be able to interact with folks. It helped me with my job opportunities, um, all of those kinds of things. And when I, let's see, uh, was 18, I wanted to, I came back to California from Costa Rica and I wanted to become a teacher. Um, I knew at that time that I had to get a job in order to pay for my education. Mm -hmm. And the job that I, I sought out and I got was that of a bilingual instructional aide. And as a bilingual instructional aide, the principal took me into the school and was showing me around. And he said, now, Elizabeth, you're going to work with the Spanish kids. 
I was like, wow, they have kids from Spain? <laughs> <laughs> they were not in that regard Spanish kids. They were Spanish speakers. Right. But in that day, we really didn't have any way to describe or there weren't labels. It, you know, they really didn't know how to talk about our English learners at that mm. time. And the students that were in the school were really struggling with literacy. And yet, um, when I would share with them some of my books, because I'm an author and I write children's books, mo mostly in Spanish, um, when I would share those, their little eyes would light up and they, they got it. They understood. Mm. So for me, the interest in literacy had to do and was intermingled with my great interest in language development and bilingual education. Wow. That's a, an interesting story, but also super relevant to the work that you're doing now. It indeed is. Now, I, I want to share with you a little bit of kind of a funny progression that I've lived yes. with uh, <laughs> the typologies of English learners. So in my day, when they were calling the students Spanish kids, we <laughs> quickly progressed and... Um, had some legislation in 1972 that called for school districts that were interested to start bilingual programs. So the students at that time were referred to as Less Ness, which stood for limited English speaking, non-English speaking. Hmm. And what it what happened is that the students were tested and if they um, they were tested if they spoke another language, they were tested on their English, and it really was only looking at their listening and speaking in English. So what would happen is the kids would then be reclassified, okay, this kid's fluent, and start to read and write, and they failed miserably because they weren't getting all the domains as part of their training. Sure. Um, I had an interesting experience because when I finally did become a teacher, a bilingual teacher, uh, during the summer I went to visit a friend of mine in Sacramento and she was working during the day and so I went to take the tour of the capital. And in that tour I came across the uh, Assembly Education Committee was holding a hearing on bilingual education and I thought, hmm, hmm that's something I know something about, so I'm going to go and sit in on it. Well, the things they were saying had no connection to what my reality was, and so I signed up to speak. And in that, um, that opportunity to step up and speak to the Assembly Education Committee, afterwards I was asked by uh, Assemblyman Peter Chacon to come and work for him. And that was a fascinating experience to go from the classroom into this political arena and learn how they are different, although they're both talking about education. Mm. Well, in the course of that, one of the senators asked me to come to his office and explain this whole thing to him. And in the course of it, he wanted to us to create in the, in the legislation a category of students called monolingual English speaking so that we wouldn't have any doubt that even if a kid had a Spanish last name that they would somehow be put into the limited the limited category. 
So he wanted monolingual English speaking, which would have made it less Ness mess. Well, he said <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. So anyway, um, but we needed to move from this emphasis on only listening and speaking. And yeah. so the legislation I worked on and that we ultimately passed changed the terminology to LEP. And some people know that as limited English proficient. And the big mm -hmm. difference there was that it did test and expect that students would learn all four domains, listening, speaking, reading, and writing English. Hmm. And as you go around the country, we have many different names for the students who are English learners. Yeah. We, that's what we call them in California is English learners. Some places are ELL, English mm -hmm. language learner. New York, you say L's. And mm -hmm. in some parts of the country, they call the students SOL, which stands for Speakers of Other Languages. But it oh. also has another kind of <laughs> ridiculous meaning, and I won't go into what that is. <laughs> but it's something out of luck. Okay? Mm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we now also have category of dual language learners. And these mm -hmm. are children who are under the age of five, who have at least one parent or guardian who speaks a language other than English at home and they're mastering their native language proficiency while learning English simultaneously. So that, that was interesting because in um, Head Start, the focus was always on English only. And so now we've had a great shift um, in recognizing that uh, many preschool students, uh, children, are dual language learners. Hmm. And I'll just mention a few others because it's kind of the under... Uh, underlying foundation for what I really wanted to share about our research on long-term English learners. Yeah. As you look at high school, well, all the way through elementary through high school, you're going to see students who are classified as newcomers. And especially when they're in high school, this can be extremely challenging for them, for the schools. Some newcomers come with a very high level of academic proficiency. In fact, their scoring or their, their knowledge level is even higher than that of the schools in the United States in math and science and so forth. Hmm. But then we also have newcomers who have no schooling whatsoever. And imagine you put a student into a high school and you say, okay, well, in four years they're supposed to graduate. So with that kind of limited schooling background, um, some of us are working very hard to create new paradigms and new ways of schools addressing those students. Um, the, the other term that you might hear is SIFE, and that stands for Students with Interrupted Formal Education. They may be migrants or refugees or asylees, students who go back and forth um, between the U.S. and their home country or you know, have had other interruptions in mm -hmm. their um, education. So we have many different types of English learners. And when people say, oh, I have English learners, it, uh, my question is always, tell me about them. Yeah. Because you I have so <laughs> many different, you know, categories, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to talk with you a little bit about long-term English learners, because this is where we've dedicated some time and work on uh, the research and on actual practice. Yeah. So, 
Um, and I know you've done some research around that and you yes. have some, yeah, some specific learnings from that. So I would love to hear more about the yes. long-term English learners. And Susan, I have sent to you a copy of the PDF that yeah. anyone is welcome to, you know, we're welcome to share that with them with yeah. this uh, research that was done. We called it reparable harm because it, as we saw, there are ways to change how we're approaching English learners in our schools, starting all the way in kindergarten, all the way through grade 12, that can eliminate the protracted uh, career category of um, long-term English learners. So let me share a little bit about how this came about. Um, the long-term English learner was not one of these many typologies or categories before. Um, those of us who work in the field would get together at meetings or different organizations or conferences uh, at work or after work and we shared some of our toughest challenges and one that came up time and time again was the middle school and high school English learners who are not progressing mm. academically or nor with their English proficiency. So all of our colleagues in school districts around knew about this and recognized this group of students, but we really had not addressed it in law, we had not addressed it in the research, etc. Hmm. So um, what we would hear though are some kind of pejorative terms being used, ESL lifers protracted English learners, mm, ever yeah. lep, you know, mm, mm. and that wasn't okay. We really yeah. needed to learn more about this. So in California, we read the initial work of Dr. Margarita Calderon and uh, regarding long-term English learners. And we, uh, as part of Californians Together, which is a group we've been in, in place uh, for over 20 years, since California did away with bilingual education, we started to convene and see what do we need to know and do and how can we be of help to the students who aren't, um, you know, able to receive a bilingual education. Mm -hmm. So um, what we discovered is that although we all knew the similarities, we weren't tracking uh, the longitudinal data. So we knew that each year at certain grade levels you had a certain number of students who were intermediate or who were beginners, but we didn't track and report uh, over time where those students were. And what mm -hmm. we discovered is that they were getting stuck, say it at the intermediate level, and they were not moving ahead. So this was like a huge aha for us. And in my work as a consultant and coach in several school districts, we were seeing some incredible results working with these students. So as part of Californians Together, we decided to do the research. Dr. Lori Olson led the work and I was contributor to the What Works section. What year, what year was this approximately? It was, it was published in 2010. Got it. Got so it. it's okay. been around for a while, but it, in education, sometimes these things take a while. They do take time. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So um, a long-term English learner is a student, an English learner, who is six or more years as an English learner and has not met reclassification criteria. So they're not yet fluent English proficient. 
Hmm. The second criteria, it shows uh, you see evidence of inadequate progress toward meeting that criteria. So stagnation or loss of proficiency on the state English proficiency test. So they, let's say a student who's at the intermediate level for two or more years, and believe it or not, there are many. Hmm. The third is looking at their grade point average and looking at uh, progress or lack of progress in the core academic subjects of language arts or math. So those three things we looked at and eventually were able to pass legislation um, and the work that I was doing in the schools was telling us a lot about these um, students, their teachers, and the parents. So in the research, these all three of these groups are addressed. And one of the things that we learned from the parents, so we would interview them, we would survey, we would have one-on-one -on -one conversations, <clears throat> is that many parents of the English learners believe that their kids speak English really well. So there wasn't this intense push like, wow, they're really behind or they're not making progress. The parent was quite convinced that they were, you know, they were doing well. And often that was because the, the student or child was translating for the parent or sure. interpreting when they went to mm -hmm. a doctor's appointment, something like that. Mm -hmm. Many of the parents had no idea that their kids were behind academically due to the United States promotion policies. So here is oh, a cultural element where in the United States, we have adopted this, you just keep moving forward grade after grade. Now, you might right. be way behind, but we don't hold you back. And in most countries of the world, uh, students do not matriculate into the next grade unless they have actually passed the grade level. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. So when parents saw that their second grader became a third grader and a fourth grader and a fifth grader, they thought they were doing yep. great. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then when we asked the parents how their child could prepare for college, now these were middle school uh, student, parents of middle schoolers, uh, the parents answer universally was they have to work hard. And of course that's true. But <laughs> right. what they didn't know was you had to take certain courses and you had to have, um, you know, different activities on your um, transcript mm -hmm. and um, grade-wise what they had to achieve. So that was an area that uh, we focused on. When we talked to the educators, here's what we learned from them. Now at the time, as you could see, the, the research was done a while ago, um, No Child Left Behind had caused severe narrowing of the curriculum. Mm -hmm. So when the emphasis was on testing reading, there were schools, and I will say I, I ran into several middle schools where they were doing this. Kids, English learners were no longer taking the history class. They were getting a second period of reading language arts. Oh. And although this seemed like a good idea, they yep. were missing out on history. Mm -hmm. And so when they got to high school, they had no background at all and were not doing well in those subjects, you know, history, for example. And the only reason is because history wasn't tested, but reading language arts and math were. So there was a tremendous narrowing of the curriculum for the English learner. 
Um, another thing we learned is that very few teachers, classroom teachers, administer the speaking part of the, the uh, state English proficiency test. So in many school districts, they had a group of outside external folks who would get trained and then they would go in and test the students. Now, there were a couple of drawbacks, one being that the English learner students wouldn't, wouldn't always mm, take seriously the test. You know, like, yep. oh, yeah, you're the bus driver. and you're... I actually <laughs> did have a school district where the bus driver was on the team of testing people. Um, but the more important point is that teachers themselves were not seeing or hearing the proficiency of the student. And so in a class with 30 students, you've got kids who are really quiet. You don't get to hear them talk very often, except maybe for elementary teachers. They get out on the you know, at recess and on the playground, sure. yeah. and the student talks to them. And so they go, wow, they're really proficient. They sound really proficient. Hmm. And yet, in the academic arena, not so much. Hmm. Um, what we learned from the English learner students uh, is that many English learners don't know they are English learners. Now, this was especially true in middle school and high school. And it, as a good example, um, a, a high school group of counselors came over and were talking to eighth grade students at a school that's written about in this project, in the um, research. And it was a school that I worked with for five years. When the counselors came over to meet with the eighth graders and give them their schedule for the following year, a student asked, why am I in this class? Why aren't I in the honors geometry class? Looking at his friend, he says, I'm actually a better geometry student than he is, <laughs> mm -hmm. which was actually true. Okay. So <laughs> yeah. we called the counselor over and the counselor said, well, that's because you're an English learner. You're going to be in the sheltered math class. Now that was an automatic assignment was to put this English learner in a sheltered class. But the kid, the student said, I'm not an English learner. I've been here since kindergarten and I, I learned English since then. So he didn't really even know why every year he was being tested. He didn't know that he needed to reclassify. So for a lot of students, that's important. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And then um, the kids don't really take that annual test seriously because it, like I said, it may be administered by a group of people that they don't know. And also, um, many times the questions are the same questions year after year after year. For example, in California, you get a grade range of grade three through five, and the test items are the same. Oh. So the kids hmm. see these and they remember them. All right? Sure, yeah. Um, a lot of times, another thing we learn from the English learner students is they have very optimistic beliefs about their future that don't correlate with their GPA. Hmm. So we needed to show them and teach them, and we did. We started having regular conversations with students about their transcript so that they truly understood it and could ask questions about it and that they needed to take certain classes in high school in order to go to college or to, you know, Anyway, they, that was a, a real big uh-huh. And then the last one that I would say is that we saw when we visited classrooms, when we talked with teachers, that our 
um, many of these long-term English learners would demonstrate something we came to call learned passivity. So learned passivity is um, probably something that teachers see a lot where students are just quiet in class they don't raise their hand and ask questions and they you know they're not interrupting but mm -hmm. they're just very quiet and you don't know from seeing that whether or not the student is understanding and so as we get into the higher grade levels uh, teachers will just keep moving forward with the with the content instruction and um, students get further and further behind. Yeah. So if, it, if somebody were listening to me right now, they might think, oh, you're only talking about middle school and high school. But what we learned about learned passivity is that it started in the early grades when students, when a teacher would ask a question, a wonderful um, question of the students, and they answered, and the answer was, wrong. In other words, the teacher had in mind something specific that they were looking for and mm -hmm. the student didn't have that answer. So they learn quickly. I'm not going to answer because either everybody's laughing at me or the teacher says, well, that's sure. interesting. Let's ask someone else, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so they learn this behavior and it can be unlearned, but it's easier if we don't learn it in the first place. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, part of this is that our schools are set up so that we have the same standards and grade level expectations for all our students. Now, we don't want to assume or hold any students to lower standards, but what we've done by not using the student's home language is we have set aside a whole bag of tools that they bring with them, and we expect them to catch up and learn the English language at a level of their age-like peers and learn the rigorous content that the standards call for. So, you know, it's the same instruction, the same test on the same standards, and yet many English learners are put at a serious disadvantage by the school system that doesn't use or encourage or allow their language. Hmm. So, you know, if, if you had a calculator or you had your phone, you could kind of do the numbers with me. What I did is I, I created a little um, projection to see what, in fact, is the difference in the amount of English that our students hear and are exposed to. So a native English speaker, well, a native English speaker in their first five years of life, let's say they're awake for 12 hours a day and 365 days a year listening to English in the household, from the family, from television, from others. So when I did, I multiplied that out, at five years old, they've got over 20,000 hours of English exposure. Now, it's wow. not all great, and yeah. it's not, you know, <laughs> high levels of academic discourse, sure. but that's, that's kind of a general. My English learner, who has also got 20,000 hours of language, but it's not English. They, in some instances, are coming in with zero. Yeah. So, you know, we've put them at a tremendous disadvantage. And then some people want to say, well, um, let's 
encourage the parents to only speak English. Oh, yes. <laughs> so this is not, and I want to, I want this for just a moment, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, when I, when I give this example of a child entering school at five years old, and they've already got 20,000 hours of English, a well-meaning educator or other might say, you know, parents, if you only speak English to your child at home, they'll have a better head start. They'll do better. Mm -hmm. Now, if the parent doesn't really speak English well, and they can't really communicate with their child, then that child is becoming what in some places they call non-non, meaning they don't speak English well, and they don't speak Spanish well, oh, or their home right. language, okay? Yeah, yeah. So um, I want to share an experience that is a very painful one, but it was in our family, and I think it it speaks to this idea of exposure to the English language and telling students or parents don't speak anything but English. When my um, mother-in-law came to live with us, she brought six of her children, and they blended in with five of my children. <laughs> <laughs> and her youngest, Alonso, was the same age as my oldest, Chava. Okay. The two boys went off to kindergarten together. Mm -hmm. Now, when, they, when we went to register them at school, the school secretary asked my mother-in-law, do you want your child to learn English or do you want them in a bilingual program? Well, of course she wanted him to learn English. Sure. She didn't realize that he would do that in a bilingual program as oh. well. Mm -hmm. So anyway, she chose that program. And the teacher met with my mother-in-law later in the school year and said, you know, you're really hurting your son by speaking to him in Spanish. You really need to speak to him in English. Well, one thing that our teachers here in the United States don't realize is that in many places, parents hold teachers in such high esteem, you know, mm -hmm. they've gone to college and they know things, they're responsible for the education. Sure. And my mother-in-law, who had only had a second grade education herself, heard that, came home and made the decree that she was not going to speak to her child in Spanish and she would always come to me and speak to me in Spanish and then ask me to talk with him in English and so what happened in his short life is that he became further and further away from his family especially his mother she couldn't give him affection because she didn't know those words she couldn't give him discipline because she didn't know those words and so he became very disconnected. And as he got older, he wanted to belong, like we all do, and he joined a tagging crew that went out and, you know, tagged with graffiti everywhere. Mm -hmm. When he was 23 years old, at 4 o'clock in the morning, ran across the freeway to tag in the center uh, on a sign, mm -hmm. and he uh, was hit by a car and killed. Mm. So and sad. that that loss of Alonso was so mm. unnecessary, and I thought about it so much, and I think that a big part of it was that disconnection to the family brought about by this piece of advice that yeah. I would urge everyone to, uh, you know, not yeah. go with that. Not go. Not and, that, and that teacher didn't 
mean to give misinformation or bad advice, I'm sure. Um, yeah, and that's, I mean, I see that as well because I do see very many well-meaning people, but at the same time, and it, it seems to make sense. If you want the child to learn English, you got to speak more English. Yeah, yep. But part of this is not just learning to recite rote words. It is comprehending. It's deeply understanding. And using the home language is a wonderful tool for parents um, because the more that they read to their kids, for example, in Spanish or whatever le the language is, when that child comes to school, they're familiar with story and how stories are constructed right. and they can apply that. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, and we, we talk on this podcast, as you know, a lot about the science of reading, and yes. part of it, we talk about uh, Scarborough's rope or Scarborough's braid, mm -hmm. and one half of that is all about language development, which is yes. in the oral environment, right. um, and it seems to me that that part of it is all about helping kids understand how language how works. How language works, yes. Not just English language, but how right. language works. Right. And honestly, when you, you know, you hear people say, oh, those kids are little sponges. Yes. Well, when I watched my little five sponges at home, what I would see is that they're not, they were not thinking about English and Spanish. They were thinking about communicating ideas. Yeah. So very often, and we hear a lot of the research on translanguaging, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times what my own children would do and what students will do in school is they'll blend together the two languages. So, for example, my boys were in their bedroom when they were small and they were building a something, a castle with uh, Lego blocks. And I said, oh, that's fantastic. How do you do that? And my son says, it's easy. You just hunt them together. Now, the word juntar in Spanish means to link things together. Mm -hmm. But that's a lot of syllables. So in his bilingual brain that knew these different words, he chose the Spanish word and <laughs> anglicized it. Okay, that's great. So and and guess what? He's perfectly bilingual. He's very. He's now. He's not continue. Well, he does continue that. We do. We joke with, at home and sure. use Spanglish sometimes. <laughs> so, oh, uh, what I want. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say that's a it's a it's a good reminder of the power of language. And, yes. And you know we'll talk a little bit later um, more about how that might be reflected in some of remote learning situations. But um, yes, uh, it's a it's a great example of of a, a reason why we want to encourage kids to play with language and yes. use language and the power of doing it in that home language. Outside of the fact that we never want to separate a child from their family unit. Oh my God, yeah. So. Yes. Uh, um, so what I, what I thought I would share are, okay, so we know what the research about long-term English learners, we know that students sometimes develop this learned passivity. We know that the home language is so useful, critical uh, for the students to have that developed so that they can be successful in both or either language. Yes. And so what I wanted to do is share kind of my ABCs about things that we can do that don't require a ton of preparation, but awareness on our part. That's and great. so if you were going to write down like a three-column chart and put A, 
B, C in those, you know, one in each column. Mm -hmm. The first one would be for the letter A is assess and anticipate. So let me give you a great example, and I think every teacher can relate to this. Um, we oftentimes will assess prior knowledge by asking students, who can tell me something about fossils? Okay, who can tell me? Mm. And the, the um, response that we sometimes get is one or two students maybe raising their hand or mm -hmm. complete silence, the higher the grade <laughs> level you go, you know, sure. complete silence. <laughs> and one of these learned passivity um, behaviors is that kids oftentimes learn that if no one responds, the teacher will tell us anyway. Yeah. So that's <laughs> not really helpful. Um, but my question was, who can tell me something about fossils? And I want to share with you a, a quick example from a second grade where the teacher asked this question when students were starting a new unit on studying about fossils in science. And she asked the class the question, who can tell me something about fossils? No one raised their hand. And finally, a young man just tentatively raised his hand to answer, and she was so glad, <laughs> and she called on him right away. Okay, Mario, so what can you tell me about fossils? And he said, is it a watch? Well, mm. <laughs> all the other kids laughed at him, okay? Sure. But yeah. that wonderful teacher said to him, what made you think of that? And he said, well, my dad got a watch, and it says on there, fossil. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> and she said, good thinking. She didn't say, now, come on, we're talking about science, and I shouldn't make that voice, but yeah. um, you know what I'm saying. I do. So one of the things that I've written about, and I, I've sent to you, is an article on toxic questions. And this yeah. really is a toxic question, because when you ask, who can tell me, you're asking for individual students to respond. And I know teachers now are so good at getting students to interact with one another and come up with ideas and answers together. And this is fantastic for English learners. But instead of asking the question, who can tell me something about fossils? I propose that you ask, what comes to your mind when you think of fossils? Oh, what a simple change, but so it's powerful. A, exactly. And yeah. I have seen such a change because the answer that student gave about the watch actually is a correct answer to what comes to your mind yeah. when you think Makes of sense. fossils. Yeah. yeah. So that's one. And I'll share with you two other toxic questions and alternatives in just a moment. Great. Great. Um, in the letter A, I said assess. So we need to find out what do students already know. But we also need to anticipate. So as you're doing your lesson planning, you would look at the textbook that the students are going to read, or whatever the text might be. It could be online, it could be an article, it could be a library book, whatever it might be. But to anticipate the kinds of language that the students would, uh, your English learners might have difficulty with. So if we think about Isabel Beck's tier one through three words, I ask my teacher colleagues, think about which is the most difficult, which tier? It's a tricky question. You it know? is tricky. <laughs> so quick review, tier one words are at the bottom. They're those basic words that are commonly used and heard in spoken English, like 
baby and good and swim and so forth. Yeah. Tier two words represent the more sophisticated, high utility academic vocabulary of context, content texts such as uh, obvious, complex, establish, analyze, verify. You know, these are all words mm -hmm. that cross over into different content and areas. And then tier three words that are uh, appear in more isolated situations. So for example, medical terminology, math, biology terms, etc. Mm -hmm. Now here's, when you think of those three, we think, oh wow, the tier two and three are the most difficult. And the good news about them, again, back to my students who are Spanish speakers, is that for Spanish speakers and for some other Romance languages, uh, these words, these tier two and tier three words are often cognates, meaning they're the same in English and they're yeah. the same in Spanish. Right. So if we can show and teach kids, our English learners, as part of their English language development, uh, what are the ending, you know, the word endings that will most often yield words that are cognates, they can learn a lot. And I've sent to you um, something that the New York City Schools put together, which is a yeah. fabulous resource on these different categories or different um, uh, word endings. Yep. And as an example, a really common one that's a, a good one to start with is in English, we have words that end with T-I-O-N, like education. Mm -hmm. In Spanish is educación. It's spelled exactly the same, except we don't have the T, it's a C. Yeah. And revolution, revolución, multiplication, multiplicación. So there's a lot of these words. Now imagine a student who's struggling with this new language, realizing, wow, I really know a lot of words. Yeah. Or I can know them, because don't assume that just because they're in the Spanish language, a student already has learned those. Just like in English, they're new and they're they're... Uh, academic. But for me, the tier one words, which seem easier, they are sometimes the most difficult. And that's because so many of them have multiple meanings. So for example, if you take the word good, very simple word, we've all heard it before, the kids know it's the opposite of bad, good and bad. But we use the word good in so many ways in English. For example, if you're in second grade reading uh, Daniel's Dinosaur, there's a line that says, the dinosaurs are gone for good. Now, that's a different kind of good, although I think it's good that they're gone. Uh, you know, dinosaurs are gone for good means they're extinct. Yeah. So I need to anticipate this before I read the book aloud that some of my students might need a quick explanation or I need to extend or expand so that they get it and understand. Hmm. High higher grade level teachers will often ask students, they'll say, ask good questions. What's a good question? It's not like the opposite of bad. It usually means thoughtful or higher level or something like that. Mm -hmm. Not just a rote uh, recall question. Yeah. We have words like goods and services, or hey, it takes a good long time. So those are all examples. Some good ones. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't mean to yeah. use that word, but those are good ones. <laughs> they are indeed. I, here's one that I love though. I, I remember seeing this on a commercial. 
Um, we teach denotation and connotation in reading so that students will understand this, right? Mm -hmm. The denotation being the dictionary meaning. So in this commercial, there was a young man going up an escalator, a woman coming down the escalator, and they're kind of crossing by each other. And she, she says, aren't you the father of one of my kids? And this man just panics right so he's getting the denotation of kids means your offspring and connotation being you know in this case she was a teacher and she was asking about or isn't your child one of my students so (laughs) it's a good one (laughs) it's a good one for us to remember because our English learners really struggle with this reading things that are very simple so multiple meaning words words like um, let me ask the word night and the word evening are like synonyms. They're similar to one another. And yet, when this young lady from the high school told me, <laughs> her mother, she was going to the prom, and her mother bought her a nightgown for the prom. What oh, she yeah. meant was an evening gown. Right. So sometimes it can have a great deal of, you know, mean something quite for different. Sure. Yeah. So go ahead. I was just going to say, so great. We have A, um, assess and anticipate. Anticipate. That's exactly right. And then as we anticipate, I'm just going to show you one more, or give you one more idea. As I'm looking at the textbook that my students are reading, um, and believe me, this starts right in kindergarten. There are a lot of idiomatic expressions, a lot of things that culturally students might not know, and we need to... Ha- like I say, anticipate them by reviewing the text. So mm-hmm. here's one from a, a biology text, and it says here, <coughs> excuse me, um, okay, not all animals have four chambered hearts. Amphibian hearts have only three chambers, fish have only two chambers, many invertebrates do not have true hearts at all. So when I ask what words would we want to call out, well, certainly the word chamber, amphibian, invertebrate, mm-hmm. these are all in the higher tier words, right? Mm-hmm. But when it says many invertebrates do not have true hearts at all, my English learner may be very puzzled. True heart meaning like opposite of false. Yep. And what it is actually doing is referencing back to a previous paragraph where it described what a heart is, you know, what oh. are the parts of the heart. Sure. So on our list of ABCs, the next one I would suggest is build background, and that's the letter B. Hmm. So building background, once I've anticipated, okay, my students might not know that phrase, true heart, other than Valentine's Day related. (laughs) I look at the research by Marilyn Adams and um, Bertram Bruce, and a quote that prior knowledge is the strongest predictor of a student's ability to make inferences about text. That's a good one. Wow, that's <laughs> very important. Yep. Because if the student doesn't share the same prior knowledge as the author, they're going to really find it difficult. Let me give you a quick example, okay? We're going to, um, students, we're going to read a, um, we're going to read an article and it's about a very current event that has occurred in our city. Here are the words, the vocabulary words you'll need. Illegal, shot, dead, trap, violation. 
Well, so I'm thinking this is going to be pretty scary, right? Yeah. Well, these are all basketball terms. Oh, he shot the ball. <laughs> it was a dead ball. It was steal the ball. So it, it's just a good example of how uh, our mind and our students the same thing. They have a particular background and aren't necessarily going to know. Yeah. All right. Well, and that's true for, it's so interesting because mm-hmm. context and background knowledge are universally true, but mm-hmm. even more so than for our language learners. So let's look at that, what you just said. And that is, um, I'm going to give you an example out of a math text. Okay. All right. So if you were looking at the page, you would see a picture of a black line drawing of a dog. And the math problem says, Mario is dog-sitting. He earns $5 per hour. How much can Mario earn if he sits three dogs two hours every day? (laughs) Now, when I read this, immediately I thought, my students, my English learners, are going to think Mario is that dog. Yep. Because the words dog-sitting doesn't even appear in the dictionary, by the way. Um, It means you have to know what babysitting is in order to make that connection Mm. and in our culture very often uh, we don't hire a 14 year old kid to come and sit with your kids while you go out somewhere babysitting is not as common so dog sitting is going to be even less even less yeah yeah Yeah. so the letter c the last uh, of the three is check for understanding and I have two more toxic questions to share and their alternatives. The first is when we ask, are there any questions? And teachers usually will laugh because they know when you ask that, you may get answers like, um, what time do we go home? Or (laughs) what's for lunch today? You know, (laughs) are there any questions? But what we're really trying to do is not find out yes or no. Yes, there are questions or no, there are not. What we want to know is what are your questions? So my alternative is what kinds of questions do you have? Mm -hmm. And then you wait. Now, the wait time, we all know about that. We don't always... (laughs) Put don't it do it well. Practice. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But what kinds of questions do you have? And if you see the kids are all still sitting there, nobody raising their hand, here's a really good one to try. Turn to your partner and I want you to formulate a question you think somebody might have. Oh, that's good. That's it's a good. good one. And the kids yeah. will actually take advantage of it. So if I had a question I really didn't want to ask in front of everybody, right. I could raise my hand and do that. Yeah. Or another way for older students, you might say, you know, uh, Maria's absent today. When she comes back tomorrow, what kinds of questions do you think she'll have? Oh, that's good So too. that it gives them a purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Takes the and pressure off too a little it bit. It does. It does. Yeah. And, and, you know, because a lot of times the kids will say, why is she asking me to repeat this stuff? We all heard it, you know. <laughs> right. The last one, the third toxic question is, does everyone understand? Mm. And you'll get everything from head nods to blank stares. And there isn't a real good question that I can offer as an alternative. But re- instead of asking, does everyone understand, show me what you understand. And we can use whiteboards, we can use exit tickets, we can use, um, you know, active conversations and so forth to get at that information. Yeah, I love that alternative. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, and then I think the, the, the last thing that I want to kind of leave everybody with are we've talked about a number of do's, things that are important when you have English learners, especially long-term English learners, mm -hmm. to try to help them understand when they're reading or listening and to help those students to um, participate more and to learn more. So um, I've talked about a number of these positive things, but along with these do's and don'ts, um, I want you to consider a few other do's and don'ts. Okay. Great. Yeah. So, so one of the things that I will often see is very caring teachers who want those newcomers, who want those students to understand what's going on, and yet the teacher doesn't speak their language. So they will ask a more proficient English learner who is bilingual to interpret for the new arrival or student who's quite limited in English. Mm -hmm. And the reason I have this in my don't category is it's actually a very, very good idea. But it might take away that the, the attention of the student interpreter, the student that you've identified, from their own learning. And honestly, they haven't really been trained on how to do this work. Mm -hmm. So you might say, well, who's going to train a kid? Let me share with you something exciting. In some of the schools that I'm working with, we formed an interpreter's club. Oh, that's and great. the kids actually can come and learn from people. We invite the um, speakers, including the district translators, so they work for the school district, or local court interpreters, deaf interpreters. There's um, different services, uh, one that I use called Language Line. Mm. where um, in, the, in the medical profession or even in some school districts, if you have a, a parent or student come in and they, don't, they speak a language that no one in your school knows, you can call into the language line and they will get within a minute and a half have an interpreter on the, on the line. So Amazing. it's a fantastic service. Yeah. yeah. And the medical um, at Kaiser, where I go, they use that service uh, quite a bit. Um, so bringing in speakers and then uh, the Highline School District in Washington State has online 10 behavioral skills that interpreters need to know and they are fantastic and then with older students you could invite those students who are part of the interpreters club to give service at back to school night or performances or open house, not, not anything like an IEP meeting or something sure. that's, yeah. you know, legal or very, very critical. But they can do this, and it is such a fantastic, positive asset. Hmm. So if you're going to use student interpreters, think about doing, you know, making sure that they get some kind of training. Um, it's, you know, and it's a profession. It's something that they might consider. Yeah, that's um, interesting. I already shared with you about not telling students or their families not to use their home language. Yes. But let me give you an opposite of that. Great. I is starting all the way with newcomers all the way to your long-term English learners service projects. For example, I want to build my students fluency in reading. I want their pronunciation skills and intonation to improve. And I need them to read things over and over again, and yet they may get kind of tired and exasperated about that. Yeah. So with a service project that my daughter actually recommended, 
was having the students recording for the blind. Oh, and yes. that is really awesome because it gives the students purpose and it gives them a reason to reread and reread and practice mm. their fluency yeah. yeah, or make recordings for young children. Okay. And that's a great one. Yeah. Yeah. It really is very good. And then the last thing um, I would share with you is um, I mentioned earlier that I am <clears throat> a children's book author and I was really struggling with working in a school where a high school where we had um, developed a newcomer program and the students in the newcomer program needed to read some very simplistic things to begin with in English and so I, I created something that is a project-based learning project called the multicultural author project it gives students a very positive reason to read beginning level books because they are going to become authors learn how to write them hmm. and so the project includes reading a whole bunch of ABC books and yeah. looking for the patterns and looking for you know well, how do the authors you know what's similar what's different mm -hmm. having them write one and I've got a great one that students high school boys wrote on um, the ABCs of soccer and it's fantastic and then I also have included things about how do you market and how do you publish oh, so that oh. this is a real you know career kind of uh, connection mm -hmm. but it's also one that allows the purpose of students reading and writing about things they know and contributing to the need for multicultural offerings in the uh, children's book arena yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Great. Some great suggestions. I mean, I, you, I've been taking notes here. I'm sure our <laughs> listeners are taking notes too. And as a reminder, we're going to link our listeners to all the resources you oh, sent wonderful. me. Oh, yeah, wonderful. Yeah, in the show notes so that they can take them away. Um, mm -hmm. um, I'm hoping um, as we close yes. that we, we like to give uh, listeners a takeaway. You've given us some great takeaways. But I'm wondering, we had a conversation earlier about you know, in this world of remote learning um, and, you know, our the home language issue, yes. um, I would love for you to just leave our listeners with that, a little bit of that conversation that sure. we had about the importance of sure. that home language, especially now. Well, students are at home studying and they may be amongst an entire family where no one speaks English. And if they're to go online and read things and listen to things in English only, that can be, you know, it can be very, very difficult without the teacher there as kind of the, the um, maker of meaning for these, you know, readings and lessons and packets and so forth. Mm -hmm. So um, a couple of things. One is uh, finding resources that are in the student's primary language. So, for example, if we're reading a history um, reading, then having students be able to listen to something, it doesn't have to be an exact translation, but it is something similar so that builds background for them in their home language. Also, letting parents know that it's a really good idea with young children to be reading to them. Now, um, I will send you also a couple of links to some online free resources of stories that are in a variety of languages oh, and different great. grade levels. Yeah, that's great. So that 
um, parents and teachers can go there and pick something out and then have the students um, have that. Um, but that, that would be my recommendation because not being in the classroom surrounded by others who have the language, it's going to be very, very difficult for um, the students to work at home and not have uh, the support and the, what do I say, and the mediation of the teacher helping them sure. to understand meaning. Yeah, I love that. And it, and it just, you know, going back to your earlier story too, it reminds us that language development is so important, but home mm -hmm. connection is so important too. And yes. we can bring these two together, especially yes. now is uh, mm -hmm. super, super great. Well, we really appreciate you having on. Our listeners are going to be thrilled with all the resources that we're going to link them to in the show great. notes. Mm -hmm. um, so thanks again for taking time with us. Thank you so much. And I wish everyone uh, wellness. <laughs> yes, thank you. Stay well. Okay. We're so grateful to our amazing guests today and to all of you making a difference in the lives of students every single day. Be sure to check the show notes for resource links from today's podcast, and we want to hear your stories and successes. Follow us on Facebook at Science of Reading the Community, or if you're looking to help implement the science of reading, send an email to sormatters at amplify.com. Tell us what guests you think we should book or tell us about the research that really excites you. And be sure to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Susan Lambert.